You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition and their new Centerfire Rifle Ammunition Terminal Ascent. Now, the Terminal Ascent has a slipstream polymer tip that helps flatten trajectories and initiates low-velocity expansion at longer ranges. The Terminal Ascent gives you match-grade long-range accuracy in a bonded hunting bullet and it comes in a variety of cartridges including the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 28 Nosler, the 7mm Remington Mag 30-06 and the 300 Win Mag. If you want to find more information about the Terminal Ascent, visit federalpremium.com and while you're there, check out It's Federal Season, the official podcast of Federal Ammunition. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up to become a Go Hunt insider today at GoHunt.com. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of time and dollars back to fish and wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. Happy Thursday, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Now, before uh, we get into today's guest, I just wanted to take a quick second to um, just say thank you to, to everyone um, who has taken some time to uh, listen to the podcast and show their support over the past uh, eight months. Um, this has been a, a great experience for me and, you know, really getting to talk to all of these great individuals and companies who have such a, a love and drive and, and passion for conservation in the outdoors has been um, 
nothing short of incredible. So before I got into today's episode, I just wanted to take a quick minute to uh, say thank you to everyone out there, whether you've been a guest um, or you're just a, a regular listener. Thank you. Um, now, today's guest is Kelvin Farinato, and Kelvin is the brand coordinator at 2% for Conservation. And Kelvin and I get to, to have a really cool conversation about really how um, she got involved with conservation, um, starting with her time in school and starting uh, the first uh, collegiate chapter um, at her university where she attended uh, Boise State. Uh, and really how from there it just kind of snowballed into uh, a life and a career around conservation. Um, we also get a chance to kind of take a, a bit of a deeper look into 2% and really what the process looks like, um, you know, how they are growing um, and all the different types of um, brands and companies that are, are coming on board. Um, Kelvin also gets to share with us uh, an experience that she had on a, um, a mountain goat call hunt um, this past fall and really take a deep dive into the reasoning behind it, you know, the, the feelings that she had towards it, um, and just really the overall experience that she got to share with um, four other um, outdoors men and outdoors women um, out there in the Grand Tetons. So really cool uh, story to hear, and I really appreciate her taking some time to share that with us. Um, so again, today's episode is number 40 with Calvin Farinato. Enjoy, guys. All right. On the line with me today, I have 2% for Conservation brand coordinator, Kelvin Farinato. Kelvin, how are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, I know this is uh, this is an early morning recording, so I appreciate you making some time before you head into work. <laughs> yeah, of course. So, Kelvin, you've listened to the podcast, so you kind of know how I like to, to start things off here, but um, I, I want to... Go back to, to the beginning, kind of your, your roots, your upbringing, uh, and what or how and when um, you were introduced to the outdoors. Uh, yeah, so I was born and raised in Ventura, California. Um, beautiful area right on the coast there, a little north of L.A., south of Santa Barbara, um, just to paint the picture. And, you know, I grew up constantly outside doing something in the ocean, whether it was surfing. I learned that at a very young age. Um, I mean, my dad and my, me on a board at three years old, um, fell in love with it, but you know, the ocean is the ocean. And, um, I deep sea fished. I loved it. I spearfished once I got a little older, but there's always something in me that I always wanted to go to the mountains. Um, we would river fish constantly growing up. Um, and it was just something I always wanted to do. I always wanted to live in the four seasons. Um, you know, Ventura stays 60 degrees the entire year when it drops <laughs> below 50, everybody's pulling out their like nano puffs and everything. <laughs> and I was like, I want to experience what the real world is like. So not that Ventura is not, but, um, in college I decided to go to Boise state. Um, once I got there, I knew that I was not going back to the ocean. Um, I fell in love with the mountains. I loved skiing. Uh, my grandpa, when I was younger, he taught me how to fly fish. Um, and I never really did much of it in California um, until I moved to Idaho. And then once I got there, um, met a few friends. They kind of helped me perfect my fly fishing. Okay. 
And I was done. I was like, this is it. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to be fly fishing until I die. <laughs> I fell in love with it, loved it even more. And then every activity I started doing in Idaho, I was beyond um, infatuated with. Couldn't stop. So went to Boise State. Um, and from there, I helped actually start the Collegiate uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Club. Um, and, you know, progressed a little bit through conservation. That's when I really started to get involved in conservation, uh, learning the back ropes of what they do and just preserving public lands. Um, it was incredible, great experience for there. Uh, I graduated with a public or a public relations degree and an AA in psych. Um, I accidentally got a psych degree because I kept taking all of these random courses that were like my electives <laughs> were like, oh, criminal psychology. Oh, this. And by the time I was graduating, they're like, you're only a class away. Why don't you just finish that? And I was like, sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> exactly. So I actually didn't start hunting until I was in college. Um, my boyfriend, now husband, introduced me to it. So First hunt I ever went on was an elk hunt, and it was a successful elk hunt. So my first pack out was an elk, and I was very much overwhelmed with the experience. But it was another activity that I was like, oh, yeah, done, sold. This is incredible. Getting my food from the source. Um, I've always been super into nutrition and just knowing what goes into your body and how it breaks down and, you know, that process. So for getting an elk and eating that and being like, wow, this is something that I helped with. I didn't shoot it, but I helped with and yeah. I was there for it and I helped earn it. Um, has then just jet set in my intrigue and wanting to hunt. So now I bow hunt, um, and love it. But once I graduated college, um, I got an internship with the governor's office of outdoor recreation and moved up to Montana. I lived in whitefish for a while and it was an incredible experience. I mean, I worked on both the conservation end of things and also the brand front. And I learned so much about Montana and I just, Montana is its own entity and it's just, it's beautiful everywhere you look. I should, probably shouldn't be saying this because it's full, but it's not <laughs> it's gorgeous, incredible mountains. Um, the people here are wonderful. And I just knew that this was going to be my home, if not my forever home, but my home for the longest time I can think of. Um, I mean, the access is great. And so after working at, um, the governor's office for a while, my, um, fiance, but, uh, he ended up getting a job down in Bozeman and I fell in love with the area there too. And that's how I got hooked up with 2% for conservation. Um, I was actually working at Shanae's at the time and Jared, it was my last day and Jared, our uh, executive director, was coming in looking for something for his son. He's like, yeah, we have this internship. And I met him through um, the governor's office. And he's like, we have this internship coming up. And, um, you know, I know that you're leaving. Or It was like perfect timing and everything aligned. And Jared just goes, yeah, if you want to apply, feel free to. And I was like, well, I don't know. I don't really want to be an intern again. But right. I don't want to get set on a career. And I ended up being applying and got the internship and was beyond thrilled, love what 2% does, love what it stands for. And then after the internship was done, transitioned into a more permanent role. Um, and now am the brand coordinator. Well, wow. so that's, that's a really interesting story because I know that, you know, Jared and I have, have talked a little bit about, um, at least what your role is with 2%. Um, but to hear kind of the full story is cool. And 
to see that, you know, when you were in college that something kind of sparked, um, you know, your love for conservation uh, and the outdoors is, is cool to see. And then how you decide to, you know, you fall so in love with it and then you go, okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to make this a career. This is what I'm going to pursue, you know, further than just, you know, what you were doing in college. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was the smallest thing. Once I realized that I didn't want my public lands or I didn't want animals or something like that to be treated, um, my thought was disrespectful at the time, but it's grown into an even more big of a passion. But realizing that you can do something about it and that there are organizations and um, groups out there that want to stop this. I remember being at the governor's office and my boss, Rachel, she was saying, she's like, okay, I need you to find a list of all the conservation groups that you can find. I want to figure out what are the ones and what do they do. And I remember Googling and just so lost in the world of, oh my gosh, there's an organization for sheep. There's an organization for elk. There's an organization for this. And that just kept going. Yeah finding myself in this like rabbit hole of everything like rep your water and warriors for quiet water. I mean, it is incredible what these organizations have done and just with just starting too. I mean, 2% for conservation is only five years old, but what we've been able to accomplish in those few years is incredible. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think one of the, the, the things that I love about, 2% 2% and the the brands that are, you know, involved in that are certified is one, um, some of the large name brands that are uh, in the outdoor space that kind of put their money where their mouth is, right? In terms of, you know, they're making a product specifically designed for, um, you know, for hunting uh, or, or angling or, or something in the outdoor space. And then they know that their users are consumptive users, right? And so they're making sure that they're putting this huge emphasis and effort to to give back to what their customers love to do. And, you know, the second part of that is also just the wide variety of organizations and businesses that are 2% certified. Yeah. It, it's so cool seeing what, like, like Sitka, the work that they do. Oh my gosh. I didn't even know. Yeah. And it's just baffling that you're like, I want to promote everything. And they're like, that's not what it's about. It's about the animal. It's about like, they do say some of the stuff that they do, but there's so much more behind the scenes and it just makes you have a more respect for the brand. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's like, so uh, on my side of it, um, as far as like hunting gear, right? Like I, I was introduced to first light probably four years ago, maybe, maybe five. And since then I, I just, I just fell in love with, with, everything that kind of they, um, they offered as far as like gear, but then, you know, you start to learn more about the company and everything like that. Cause they, you know, five years ago, they were still a relatively new company and then, you know, all the work and what they stand for, it just makes it such an, an easy decision to, to stick with a company like that and to support <laughs> a company that supports what you love. Oh Yeah. And just, it's cool too, to see the people that work there. Cause they all shine through the model of the brand, you know, like dark timber coffee. Um, Tony is an awesome, Tony's great, you know, and he's got so much experience in conservation and it's like, Oh yeah, I'm going to totally try and get as much coffee as I can from him. Yeah. Well that, and that's just it. I've found that since, 
since becoming 2% certified as a company, as with my company, and then obviously starting the podcast and, and talking to all these different 2% brands, like I, I don't know that I've bought coffee from a non 2% <laughs> brand, in, you know, in the past three or four months, just because I, it, I just, I love supporting them. And then you hear people's story and you, you, you know, you get, you almost feel like you get to really know them, even though you only talk for maybe 45 minutes or an hour or something like that. But you just, you, for me, it's like, man, I, I really like these people. I want to support them. You know, even if it's just buying like a bag of coffee, like it's, it's, it's doing good on so many different fronts. And, and yeah, I find myself always looking at, um, the, uh, 2% website and seeing like, if I need something like, oh, is there a brand that, that offers that, that I can, that I can check out on there? Yeah, that's great. That's what our platform is. And it's awesome. So I wanted to just kind of take a step back there. So you mentioned growing up basically in the ocean, um, you know, living there in Ventura. Do you think that as someone who grew up with the ocean and then always wanting to experience the mountains or the four seasons, as you mentioned, do you think that's kind of like an opposite? So someone who, let's say, grows up in the mountains, like always wants to at least experience the ocean to some degree? Or do you think it's like the mountains is just this unique thing that people just kind of, what's the right way to put it? They just, there's just this unknown about the mountains, right? And mm-hmm. I think that kind of just draws everyone in irregardless. But what do you think? I I feel as though the ocean lures people to, people to it. But I've seen a lot of people from the mountains, and this is just from my personal experience, that they panic in the waves. So they panic in the ocean. And it's just this unknown. They can't see what's below their feet. They don't know if they're diving through seaweed or kelp. They don't know exactly what is in front of them, what's behind them. Because it is it gets black underneath there if you're diving um, and not being able to see everything. But at the same time, when you're in the mountains, you could be hiking around and there's a mountain lion stalking you and you would never know. I mean, I've had that happen to me once or where I'm just caring about my own business and my friend goes, you need to stop. Don't move. (laughs) So it's, I think it's just the beauty of the ocean and just being present with it compared to, I mean, it's challenges in both ways. Um, and I feel as though in the mountains, you can be alone in oceans and in great surf spots or in great diving and fishing spots, you're going to run into somebody. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a really good. It's a lot more of a crowded space down by the ocean than it is in the mountains. Yeah. Because you made a couple good points there. The, the unknown of the ocean, I think is, yeah, it's, it can be pretty intimidating. I mean, I've. I don't know, I've been in the Pacific, I've been in the Atlantic, and I've I've done some surfing, and I say that very loosely. Um, my wife and I did some surfing on our on our honeymoon in Hawaii, and I was in San Diego a, a ways back, and um, did some surfing there as well. And yeah, it's especially like in Hawaii with like the reefs and stuff like that. Like I, you know, I was quite a ways from shore, and yeah, just even though there was, I don't know. 15 other people out there surfing in this, you know, little surf school lesson that we took. It's mm-hmm. uh yeah, it's a little bit intimidating for sure. I can, I can definitely see what you mean there. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's been times where I've been out with sharks or something and I'm like, Nope, I'm good. I'm going <laughs> to, yes. where then my dad will go and he's like, no, I'm just going to paddle 15 yards and catch this next wave and I'll meet in a little bit. I'm like 15 feet to a shark is like 
three feet. So I'm good. Yeah. But <laughs> I mean, I have my limits and you know, there's other, I mean, I don't tie my fish when I spear fish to me, it'll be on a buoy somewhere else, but for safety precautions. But I mean, for me, it's peaceful. I mean, hunting and fishing or the two or hunting and anything in the ocean are two things that I find. I can't have my phone on me. Um, you know, I mean, I use onyx and stuff for hunting and all of that, but, or any of those mapping systems, but it's, you still have service or you don't have service, but you can take pictures on your phone, but surfing something where you're in the water and it's you and that's it. Yeah. And it's like a free detach from, um, technology. And that was something that I always loved that in spearfishing. It was incredible having that, um, and completely being alone with your thoughts and facing Cause I feel like this might sound really hippie, but <laughs> being an American and constantly being busy and constantly doing stuff, you always have that technology in your way, but surfing and free diving and spearfishing were the one thing that you don't have anything and you are forced to reckon with like, Oh, this is what happened yesterday. I'm going to deal with it now while also being on the edge of my toes. Cause a set might come in and you're wiped off your board kind of thing. Yeah, no, that's a really good way to put it And And I never kind of thought about the distinct differences when you think about like surfing or like spear fishing as opposed to like hunting, because yeah, even when you're, you know, the, the water is just an element that is kind of, it, it's almost like an equalizer, right? Because it just yeah. it forces you to, yeah, just be, be present, no technology, none of that. And yeah, you got to kind of take things head on. Yeah. It's, it's great. I'm not as great as I used to be when I was little. So when I go back now, I'm like, oh yeah, this is a whole, this is like relearning a bike. Great. (laughs) So now as the brand coordinator for 2% for conservation, what exactly does that entail? So right now we are still, I would say still figuring out the role. Um, I transitioned from the membership coordinator to this, um, but it's doing a lot more of behind the scenes. So making sure that it's aligning with, um, the marketing plan and doing the background of the website. So every time we get a new business member, I'll go on and make a page for it. Um, also doing some of the stuff for Instagram, which I, even though I'm married to an editor, I still cannot <laughs> write an Instagram caption to save my life. Um, <laughs> it's been a struggle for me there, but um, definitely that um making sure that the new members and individual members are getting stuff on their end um we send a letter every time somebody signs up getting that to them um yeah just quite a bit of the background of it um i'm working right now with um a pr company that's helping us do some stuff for two percent and they're coming on as two percent certified um but they are really helping me learn more about the PR area, um, which is great. I mean, that's my ultimate goal is to be in PR and do that. So especially for 2% um, and marketing and just perfecting the 2% brand, so to speak. Yeah. So what would you say, what is it that you love most about the work that you're able to do? Is it, you know, just the, the, the pure conservation side of it? Is it working with all of these brands that you know, are so passionate about it. I mean, what is it that, that kind of keeps you coming back every day? I would have to say, well, we have like this pronghorn project that's coming up and it's to remove the fences, um, in this spot in Montana. And it's just being like, Hey, 
Montana Fish and Wildlife just called and they want us to help out with this project. And you're like, wait, us? Like, yeah, they're going to help. They want us to help put it on, get volunteers and do that. It's stuff like that that you're like, whoa, we have a say and we can help pronghorn. <laughs> and it's, you never know when you come into work or whenever I talk to Jared, we both work from home. But um, whenever I talk to Jared, he's like, oh, I forgot to tell you. And it's like something great like that. You're like, this is fantastic. I never know what organization is going to call and be like, we need your help to do this. And we've been a part of some pretty good um, and pretty interesting projects thus far. Um, so that's been one of the biggest things that keeps me coming back. And then also just, like I said earlier, seeing what these brands do and just being able to be like, oh, yeah, we represent them. And being proud of being a business that had them being a business member of ours. Well, yeah, and that's that's um, kind of what I would expect as far as like all of the great work, because like you said, yeah, you never know who's going to call from a day to day basis and, and need help or, you know, want to kind of inquire about, you know, maybe 2% reaching out to some of, of their brands um, to try to offer some help because, you know, there's so many, like you mentioned earlier on, there's so many different conservation organizations that are doing such great work that, you know, it, it's hard to, to know everything that's going on. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as, since you, you know, from, from transitioning from the membership coordinator to now the brand coordinator, have you seen, or have you noticed with companies that are coming on board, like a kind of a, a change, um, in terms of who wants to become certified? Um, I mean, it seems like, you know, obviously there's um, a variety of different brands that are different companies that are certified, but like I, I'm starting to see like a lot more like, uh, you know, small coffee roasters, um, more like apparel companies. I mean, have you seen kind of a shift in the type of brands or anything that want to become certified? Yeah. So it's been great. We've been um, trying to focus a lot more on angling brands and other brands that aren't just hunting industries. Um because 2% for conservation isn't just for hunters. Um, right. And that's the great thing about it too. Like it's not just for the avid hunter or the avid angler. Um, and that's why we do have, like we have a piano repair company, um, you know, and Jared's mentioned a few times that it is, we also have nannies that are, yeah, or babysitters that are 2% certified. So being able to see the expansion um, has been fantastic. And like Aaron Wheat and Sam Donnell, we just added them to the board this last summer. And they've been great with trying to work with like out backpacking brands and skiing brands and stuff like that, which I'm thrilled for. But just seeing the expansion go from, oh, they're not just hunters and anglers, conservationists. They are real people affecting real wildlife. Because, you know, not everybody hunts, not everybody fishes, but most people like wildlife. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that would be, that's, uh, I, you know, I'm almost surprised that there isn't, um, a brand, let's say like in the skiing market, that's 2% certified because that's one that would be an easy one for me to support. I mean, I, I love skiing. Um, mm. you know, I, I've been skiing since I was, you know, nine or 10 years old and yeah, that, that's, uh, you know, something that I would love to, to see someone in that space, you know, kind of, take the first step or be the first brand to really commit to the outdoors because, you know, there's a lot of people who just love, you know, the resort skiing and that's great. But then there's also, you know, a, a whole nother world of like backcountry skiers, right. Who are, you know, skinning up and, you know, they're, they're not waiting in lift lines or anything like that, that are, you know, can 
that that care about wildlife as much as you know hunters and anglers do yeah that's incredible so now how many brands um are there that are certified right now oh gosh do you know off the top of your head (laughs) (laughs) i know i'm trying to think um i'm gonna be totally off because if we keep adding more in too um I want to say that there's around 40 to 50 coming either on or coming in within the next few weeks. Um, and with transitioning into this role, Jared does a lot of that on the side. So 2% for conservation is my second job. I do have a full-time job, but Jared is, um, he does a lot of those phone calls, but now that, um, I've been taking on this role, definitely seen the influx of like, Oh yeah, I am, there's so many more people and we constantly have like a new member a week that wants to sign up, which has been fantastic. And then meeting these brands in small towns. And and like you said, we have like super small companies that is just mom and pop shop all the way up to first light and Sitka and stone glacier and, you know, mountain top with Dustin was on here, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's been, it's cool. And there's so many different companies out there that I didn't even know existed. And I was like, this is incredible. Well, yeah, and that that's just it is, you know, when when 2% will put out like a, a social media post or something announcing um, a new brand, you know, for for me, you know, who's not, you know, super up to date with, you know, all the, the companies that are out there and stuff, it's, it's a way for me to learn about a new company that I, you know, for all intents and purposes you know, probably would have never heard of, you know, it, it's kind of the same way with, with my company, right? Like just being, you know, me as the company, you know, a lot of people don't know what it is or anything like that. So to have a platform like 2% and to put, you know, a mom and pop company in the same space and in the same realm as, you know, companies like you just mentioned that are, you know, very well known uh, across the country, across the world, as far as, you know, gear is, is really cool for, for those small brands to get that, the same recognition as, you know, these larger companies. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So do you guys have like a plan, maybe not a plan, but like a, a goal, let's say, um, of where you would like to be in the next like three to five years, um, in terms of the number of brands, uh, that you would like to see certified? I don't think necessarily. I think our goal right now, um, and this would be my personal goal for 2%, uh, would be just to expand outside of just into different outlets. I mean, like I said, like the skiing and backpacking and make it more versatile for everybody. Um, that would be incredible to see. I don't think it really matters how many brands we get certified. Ultimately it would be great. The more, the merrier. Um, but just diversifying what we have currently, yeah. Yeah. And that's, and it, cause it's gotta be tough. I would imagine like, and I kind of knew asking that question that it's, it's tough to put a number on, okay, we want another, you know, 100 companies or 100 brands certified over the next, you know, three years. And it's hard to, to, because if a company decides they don't want to do it, it's, it's kind of tough to change their mind, whether they don't want to, you know, make the financial commitment or the commitment from the time standpoint, which, you know, as I've, I've talked about with, you know, a number of people on here is not, you know, it's not that big of a, of a commitment in the grand scheme of things. I mean, if you figure 21 hours a week, I mean, people or 21 hours a year, excuse me, people waste that just watching TV. Right. And it's, <laughs> so to, to spend a couple Saturdays or, you know, some nights or weekends to, you know, 
spend your time doing something is, is not a, a large scale commitment by any means. No, not at all. We had a um, committee member last 2018, every day he went out and picked up trash and like accumulated, wanted to see how much he could get at the end of the year. And, but that's what he did, even if it was a little bit and it was awesome. That's how he gave back. Yeah. And that's, and that's kind of what I love about 2% is all of the different ways that you can donate your time, right? Like it doesn't, it's, it's the, um, the criteria for, you know, what qualifies as giving back is, and, and Jared's pointed this out when we've had him on here and, you know, just in talking to him, you know, off the podcast too, is there's so many different things that, you know, count as conservation that maybe someone don't, doesn't, you know, think about because it's not, you know, volunteering in some big, you know, BHA or RMEF, um, you know, cleanup or fence pole or, or something like that. I mean, you can still have a very large impact, even if it's just at your, you know, local park or trailhead or, you know, water system, you know, whatever the case is. Yeah, it's fantastic. So I want to talk about uh, keeping with conservation here. I know that you uh, were part of a team that had a very um, unique opportunity um, to participate um, in a conservation um, project. I don't know if project's the right word um, <laughs> because it, it, that, just, that just doesn't feel right to call it a project. Um, but without giving too much away, why don't you tell us about uh, this specific um event or, or, or well, we'll call it what it is this, this hunt that you had a chance to participate in. Yes. So back in, uh, the end of September or October, I, this year's already long. Um, <laughs> Jared, myself, um, Sam Dwinell, uh, Jess Johnson and Craig, I'm going to butcher his last name, but Okrashka from Maven, we all went to uh, the Grand Tetons and helped with the mountain goat cull. Um, and geez, it was an interesting trip. Um, we were off of Moran Canyon, um, which Tetons in itself, I've spent time there as a kid and I never realized its beauty until I was hiking around in there um, with a rifle on my back and baffled. Um, so there was three shooters, myself, Jared and Craig, but it, it's an interesting, <laughs> I'm having a hard time trying to describe it cause it was such a weird trip. Um, so basically the Teton goat coal was the eradication of goat mountain goats in the national Tetons. They had two coals this year in the Tetons and in the Olympic national forest in Washington. Um, basically the purpose of eradicating these mountain goats is because they were transferring diseases, um, and taking up the resources that the bighorn sheep were, um, you know, um, supposed to be living there. Uh, okay. the sheep are native there. However, the mountain goats have migrated. They first, uh, I think it was fish and wildlife introduced the mountain goats into the snake river Valley in Idaho and it transferred, or they moved up to the Tetons, which being in that area, I completely understand why the goats moved. Um, however, they've now been impacting the sheep. So the point of it is to eradicate the mountain goats uh, in order to save the sheep population. However, it was, they tried other ways. They tried to move them. They tried to um, do the helicopter capture and retrieve. And it just, 
ultimately the best way to do it was to have ethical hunters in and being able to take the meat out. Um, so if we were to shoot a goat, we were allowed to take the meat. We weren't allowed to take the hides. We weren't allowed to take the heads. Um, everything had to stay there. The only thing we could take was the meat and you could only retrieve the meat before dark because it was super big grizz country. Um, I mean, we're hiking around, there's bear sign and tracks everywhere. Um, but it was, (laughs) it, it felt a little bit like, Oh, you have your Hunter Z. That's great. Forget everything about it. This is what you're going to do. <laughs> well, yeah. When you said that, you know, you're only allowed to take, you know, the meat um, off the mountain. Yeah. Like that, that almost goes against like everything that you kind of learned growing up, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the, well, just hunting in general, right? Because you don't want to waste any of the animal uh, or anything like that. So, yeah, that's, I, I mean, how, did you have to kind of wrestle with that a little bit because it was going against everything that you kind of were representing as a hunter? Yeah. The biggest thing I wrestled with that, but also just the fact that they wanted you to shoot nannies and kids and like they preferred if you shot nannies over billies and kids. And I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. And Jared had the same thing too. Um, and Craig as well. Like we were like, this is all interesting, but I get the conservation behind it and why they're trying to do it. Um, after city. So before we went on the hunt, we had to go, um, with the park service and learn everything about this hunt that we could, all the safety precautions, what our rules were, what we did if we ran into civilians in the back country, um, you know, bear safety. We did a full bear, um, introductory with a pepper spray, which actually came in handy on the trip, um, for charging bear, learning how to do that. Um, learning why we were eradicating the goats. Um, I, I remember feeling before going on this call, I was like, should I even do this? Is this even really what I should be doing? But after, you know, talking with fish and wildlife and having those two days of learning, um, I understood more. I mean, I'd never fully understood, but I understood more. Um, so we spent two days doing that. Um, and you have to pass a shooter's test too. Uh, you're only allowed to have copper bullets and you have to get three shots, uh, with your rifle. I think it was 200 yards into this circle of like a six inch diameter. Um, and fish and wildlife is sitting there watching you. And so you've like, it's scary. Yeah. No pressure at all. (laughs) No pressure at all. Um, so you had to get three shots in there. And if you didn't get three shots in five shots or something like that, you weren't allowed to go. Um, so it wasn't like, yeah, take your time. Yeah. You've got, you've got all day. It was, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's even more pressure. Yeah. So you're like, if I miss or if I shake or I have a jump, you're out. Um, so, and all three of your team had to do it. So if Craig missed, he couldn't go. If Jared did, he couldn't go, you know, and if I did, I couldn't go. But thankfully we all three made it. Um, and we were using those Maven scopes and oh my gosh, those things are incredible. <laughs> but, yeah. oh yeah. Um, so we get through training, we do that, repack everything. We were staying at um, one of our friend's house out in um, somewhere right outside of Jackson destroyed her living room with the amount of stuff we brought. Um, and we were all thrown off because you have to bring bear bins and your own individual bear bins. So our backpacking bags got very discombobulated. 
um, packed up and woke up early the next morning to head out. Uh, we kayaked about two miles, I want to say, across that lake um, and Jack or right outside of the Tetons. Um, so that was a beautiful morning. Stopped on an island. Um, we were all glassing Moran Canyon and bivouac. And um, I spotted the first nanny and kids. And I was, we were thrilled because we were like, they're here. They're actually here, you know, and they're incredible animals to watch. Um, we ended up setting up camp the first day. Um, Jared and I broke off from the rest. We, uh, glassed one area. The other three went to the other side and glassed. And, um, I mean, the more you looked, the beautiful the place got, um, from our campsite. I mean, it was just us there the whole time when we landed on the beach, uh, it was like every animal you could think of their tracks were there. Porcupines, wolf, or, you know, wolves, coyotes, bear tracks, moose, like every animal track was in the, the sand. It was beautiful. Um, and then having Sam there as a wildlife biologist, she's like, okay, this is this, this is what we're going to do. And this is where this is. And, you know, <laughs> it was super cool to have her there. Um, every morning we woke up pretty early, not early in comparison to normal hunts, but woke up early, trekked out three, four miles. I mean, you're bushwhacking the entire time. Um, we knew we got a general area as to where the goats were. Um, just knowing from previous trips that came in. Um, so we knew kind of where to go, kind of where to glass first day. Didn't see really anything. Um, if I remember correctly, Um, but you're walking around and we walked out, I think at the end of the first day, everybody was covered in scrapes and scars. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then, you know, we, I think it was the second day or third day we found the goats and it was a nanny and a kid. Um, and just watching the kid, I think we named him Eric Cartman because he just couldn't stop running around. (laughs) Um, and just, he would like oh, parkour, jumping off a rock. And then the nanny was like, all right, whatever, and just kept going. And he was just running everywhere all around her. And it was super cute to watch. Um, So we, me, Jared, and Craig decided to uh, make a move on it and then ended up completely blowing the um, stock. And the thing with the coal is that they wanted you to shoot at any length. It was kind of like, if you could shoot it, shoot it, which I've never taken a shot at all, you know, I don't think anything over for me personally, I'm not comfortable with anything over 400. I don't. Okay. Which is, I don't, yeah. And, and I think that's just, that's different strokes for different folks, right? Like whatever your comfort level is, it's going to be different for, for everyone yeah. out there. Yeah. And this was like, they were hundreds of yards away, but that was something that fish and wildlife was like, if you got a shot, take it. We didn't. Um, but you know, and then at that point, um, Jess had ran into a little grizz cub. <laughs> oh, wow. Because we, we split up. We left uh, Jess to go glass for us and let us know if she saw anything or if the goats moved um, and, you know, wave her hands or something like that for us. Um, and as she's hiking down to us, I think they both scared each other, the <laughs> young grizz and her. Thankfully, she was completely fine. And, you know, Jess is a badass. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's- she's got it covered. Um, Sam met up with us to let us know that the goats had moved. And, um, at that point we realized we were not going to split up at all again. Um, 
So the next day we went exactly to that straight spot. There was this beautiful clearing. Um, we had at that time, every morning you had to send in a notification to tell fish and wildlife that you were okay and that your team was good, um, from a GPS. And so our GPS wasn't sending anything that day. Um, and so Jess, it was in the middle of the afternoon. Jess was trying her hardest to try and get, um, the signal to go out. So she goes walking off in this clearing and we can all see her and she's standing up holding, uh, the GPS and she goes large animal, large animal and starts running at us. And there's this little bull moose that charges her. Sam runs, grabs her, um, bear spray. Jared and I have mine. Craig grabs his camera. (laughs) (laughs) Sam sprays the moose, just falls and just, bangs herself up on a rock. The moose sprays, it runs right into Jared and me and Craig, pushes us into the the um, trees. Jared sprays at full like length all the way around, thus getting me in the face and the moose. Oh, <laughs> moose geez. runs off. We're all coughing and I'm like gagging, trying my hardest to <laughs> figure out where I was, <laughs> which thank the Lord I was wearing sunglasses because otherwise it would have been all in my <laughs> face. Um, but yeah, that was the thrill of that day. And yeah, it was a, that was the first time I'd ever been charged. And so seeing a moose and all Jess could see was a tackle standing up and on a super dark brown moose, you know, you're not going to know what it was. Right. That's but a, that's intense. It, was, it got us all up and moving, but we also realized we were standing in the middle of a corridor um, and that there was a huge game trail after that. We we're like, Oh yeah, this makes sense. <laughs> But about two hours later, we saw the goat and the nanny again um, and decided to make our move. Um, When we got on the goat, Jared and I were 890 yards away. It was up the chute. And then Craig and Sam decided to go up it. Um, I was battling super bad with that, being at that length. Jared was too. Um, I mean, we took a shot, but both of us were pretty far off and it didn't even seem to bother the nanny and you're like you know what <laughs> this is weird um because you know it goes against everything that you learned so and, oh go ahead sorry, keep going go ahead. no no keep going no. keep going um so we took i think it was two shots each something like that and at the nanny and the kid i was aiming at the nanny he um decided to shoot at the kid and it was like one thing that we had discussed beforehand because that was one thing i didn't think i could do um, I didn't think that I could shoot a kid and be okay with it. Um, even though I knew I would be taking the meat out and taking as much as I could out, I still just, you know, it's a kid. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, also, it doesn't help what their name is. So, um, we missed both of them by a few feet at the least. Um, Craig tried his hardest to get up there fast with Sam too. They ended up losing him. But again, I mean, these animals, I think now are one of my favorite animals, just watching them and seeing their interactions with the landscape. I mean, it's pretty, incre- pretty incredible. They're where they live and just yeah. how they move her. Yeah. And they, they live in some pretty rough terrain. I mean, I've, I don't really have any experience other than, you know, research that I've, I've done or videos that I've seen and, and things like that. But yeah, I'd imagine that, that that experience that you guys had in, in terms of 
just seeing them interact and like you just said that it might be one of your your favorite animals now like i can see why people get so hooked uh, on goat hunting right because they they experience that same thing too and it just becomes kind of this uh, i don't know if fascination is the right word but this maybe infatuation with them and how they like you just said how they move about the landscape and how they interact with everything and the places that they live are just insane oh it's incredible i mean it was we took the first time we saw them just to watch them to learn their pattern and if you took your eyes off of it and just stared at it through it oh my goodness it was it was beautiful. Like, I don't think I've ever seen animals interact in the way that they do. And I've watched like sows and cubs, which are super fun to watch too. But yeah, there's something about mountain goats. And we had the conversation that nannies are the best moms. I mean, just that they're so, you're going to learn on your own. You're going to figure it out. <laughs> if you fall and burn, <laughs> you're going to fall and burn. It's okay. <laughs> Get so back up again. Now, did uh, Fish and Game, did they have um, like any expectation or anything like that in terms of um, number of goats that they either wanted or thought you guys were going to be able to to take out of the park? No, they just, anyone you saw, they wanted out, basically. Um, So if you could shoot one, great. If you could shoot 10, great. That was the weird part, too. it was so, but me, Jared and Craig were the only ones that could shoot Sam and Jess couldn't. Um, and they were phenomenal to have on the trip to just, you know, with their experience and background and Sam knowing the area and knowing what to expect. And also they're like mountain goats. Oh my gosh. They hike so fast. I was like gasping, trying to catch up with them, but <laughs> they, um, they could help pack out the meat uh, we could take as much meat as we wanted, but and take as many goats as we could. But so, the only two that presented itself was the nanny and the kid. So why do you think, or maybe they explained this um, when you guys uh, had your kind of your your classroom sessions there. Why is it that only three of you guys could have have a rifle, um, but the other two couldn't? If they if they were trying to, you know get as many, you know, kill as many of these goats as possible. It seems like they'd want, you know, as, as many guns, I guess, or as many people trying as possible as well. I think it just is odds. Um, so having that many more shooters means that there's that much more opportunity for miss and also regulation of it. Okay. Um, so having three shooters and having them have to take a test in order to figure out what their, um, shooting skill is. Um, and we were vetted pretty hard. We had to send in a full application kind of explaining how much working out we've done. Um, what we, what our experience was, uh, if we have any violations, like it went pretty far back and they did a pretty extensive, extensive background, um, check on all five of us. Um, but when it came to the shooting, I don't, they didn't really touch why it only had to be three. Um, just that you had to pass the shooter's test um, and you had to know your way around a gun for sure. Oh, yeah. And and I think that that just the, the comment that you made right there is, you know, with knowing your way around a gun, I think, you know, with, you know, irregardless of, of how many people you have in your group and how many guns, there's always this inherent um, potential of, 
of something going wrong or an accident happening. Right. And I think that, you know, maybe just in, in their minds, you know, it's just, it minimizes or mitigates the risk a little bit less if, if maybe you have, uh, you know, less firearms in the group. I, you know, I'm not sure if that, but I could see that, you know, potentially being a reason. Yeah. And we were only allowed to shoot with copper bullets. Um, and we were going into areas, our area, we didn't see a single, um, person apart from our group. Um, it was only the five of us the whole time, but there was definitely, I mean, we saw people on the lake. That was about it. But, um, I think too, just with, there's other parts that people were in. So there was like nine sections. Um, and we were in, I don't even remember what our number was, but, um, other people had a lot of traffic for, um, whether it was rock climbers or people just recreating. Um, and we had to wear these badges the whole time that say national park volunteer, which was also like, well, that's weird. Um, <laughs> but you know, I think it also was just the safety of the, um, pedestrians and other random, you know, visitors that were in there yeah. too. You see somebody walking around with a rifle in a national park and I'd be like, what's, you know, yeah. as a civilian being like, what's, is, what is going on? Yeah. Something, something's not right here. Yeah. So now I know you said that you guys, um, had taken some, some shots that were maybe a bit further than what you were really comfortable with. Were you able to, to catch up with these, with these goats and get yourself in a position for a better shot uh, over the next couple of days? No. So we ended up only taking those shots on the very last day. Um, and you had to be out at a specific time by a specific time on the next day. I think it was noon or two o'clock, um, that Sunday, whatever that Sunday was. Um, but that was our only day that we ended up getting the shots on them. So now do you know, or do you have to like have kind of a a debrief with fishing game as far as like what you experienced? Um, you know, obviously if you, if you weren't able to take any, any goats off the landscape there, I mean, do they have, or did they share with you, like a plan for the next steps to try to get these goats, um, you know, out of the park? Yes. So we ended up knowing the group that went in after us into the exact same spot. I think they went in a week or two later. Um, but when we finished, we went to fishing game, uh, headquarters and Scott was the guy that we talked to. And, um, we gave our back our, you know, our bear bins and bear spray and other stuff that they had given us the GPS, the tags. Um, Oh, so when we were, if we were to kill them, um, and be successful in that sense, uh, we had to do a nose swab and I think it was cut off a part of their ear for science, uh, for the biology to biology team to, um, just see the health of the animal and just do a little bit of research on that. Um, so we had to turn in all of this stuff back to fishing game. Um, and Scott was talking to us about, okay, where were they? What points were they at? You know, and we marked them all and gave them to Scott. Um, and so that he could tell the next group, um, and told them where we camped the path that we took. I think Craig had marked it or traced it on, um, one of the mapping systems to make sure, I don't know if, I don't think he had Onyx, but I think he might have had like base map or something and just tracked where he, where we went and the path that we took. Cause by the end of the, by the end of the week, we had worn a pretty good path <laughs> bushes. Um, and then, uh, we found out from, I think Jess actually knew the group that went in after us and they were successful in both the nanny and the kid. Okay. And okay. harvesting. So 
When it's all said and done, I mean, what was your overall experience of a call hunt like that? Or would it, or I guess what would be your, your takeaway? Like, would you do it again? Um, you know, even though, you know, you know, it's for the right reasons, even though it, it's, it's a tough hunt because it's, you're out there for reasons different than what you normally would be. I, I don't know. It, I love the experience, but I also love the area. I mean, Teton National Forest is incredible. Uh, it is a beautiful park. It is an, I understand why it is what it is. Um, so in that sense, I'm very, I mean, every morning we woke up and kayaked a mile across to get to our area. Um, you know, and at sunset, we did that too. We'd kayak back in the night or canoe back in the night. Um, for that reason, I wouldn't take anything back. And then also just learning and being around goats. I feel like I'm like almost an expert. I'm nowhere near at all, but (laughs) being able to understand, um, them, I would definitely go on a goat hunt now. Um, I definitely need to get into better shape, but, um, that's what, that's what you got Dustin for. That's yeah. I need to go to mountain tough. <laughs> um, he would be up there in a flash. He probably would have been successful. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, he's a different did. animal in and of oh. itself. Yeah. Um, but I would definitely go on a goat hunt. That's one of my dream hunts now. However, I don't know if I would go on a cull. Um, and if I did go on a cull, I would be the observer like Jess and Sam were, I would love to be there for that reason. Um, not necessarily be the one that's taking the animal. Um, and I think it does depend on the circumstances. Like I learned and I did a lot of research beforehand, figuring out why the goats were being eradicated, why they were being, why they didn't get moved, why they weren't, um, you know, why we couldn't harvest them in a different way. Cause I don't think we were allowed. I know we weren't allowed to take the meat up until about two weeks before we went. So we were supposed to just kill them and leave them. Um, and then they finally were like, you know what? Yeah, you can take the meat, which I was like, okay, now I feel a little bit more comfortable with. Um, but if it was similar to that, I could understand taking them and seeing the reasons why. And if they weren't native and they were invasive, um, that makes sense to me. And this coal is different than the Olympic one. Like they had their own reasons for that. I don't know if they were, um, I think for the Olympic one, they were pushed out of the area that they were because of development. And that's why they ended up in Olympic national park where these ones migrated to the Tetons. Um, they weren't, they were pushed a little bit, but they were, you know, it wasn't like they were native to the snake river Valley to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I, I think that it, it takes certainly a, a special type of person in terms of, you know, the love for, you know, the landscape, for the animals that, um, live in that landscape to, to be able to participate in something like that. And to understand that there is a a much bigger kind of picture, uh, for the reasons for doing it, not just, you know, killing an animal to kill an animal, you know? Yeah. And that's how I've never, I've never, um, took an animal to take one, you know, I mean, I'll wait for the, and I've been blessed too with my husband and his job. I mean, he's a editor for a hunting magazine, so he's very sick. He's been very successful this year. So meat, thankfully for us, isn't a huge, you know, issue. Not Um, short supply or anything. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But, and that, I mean, that's something I am beyond grateful for. Um, cause I know a lot of people don't have that opportunity, but it's if an animal 
isn't what I want or not like what I need at the time. Want was the wrong word, but if I don't need the meat, I'm okay passing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a really cool story. And I knew that, you know, I had talked to Jared prior to, um, you know, you guys going on this hunt and he was, you know, he had very mixed feelings, a lot like what you had just mentioned. And he was, you know, you could, I could hear it in his voice when talking to him that he was just, he was just wrestling with the whole idea. And I mean, but he was, also at the same time, you know, super excited about the, the opportunity to, to do this conservation, you know, work. Um, so it, it's, uh, it, it takes a special person, like I said. Yeah. And I think that's why they, like, there was a group that was there and they had made comments that weren't really respecting the animals. Um, and they ended up not, not being able to go on the call. Um, the, fish and wildlife talked to him after and we're like, you guys didn't make the cut. And they're like, why we made the shooting and all that. And it was kind of an odd thing to watch, but you know, through the grapevine you hear that they were just not respectful. And it was like, yeah, we're going to go and do this and that. And you're like, mm, they're not here for the right reasons. And fish and wildlife recognized that. And that was incredible to see. Um, and for them to see that these people saw it as a trophy hunt instead of a conservation hunt. Um, yeah. And those are the, yeah. And those aren't and, the type of people you want participating yeah. in something like that. Absolutely. And to see fish and wildlife kick them out was great. Um, like um, for us, it was great. Fortunate for them, but hopefully it'll be a reality check later down the line. Yeah. And I think that just kind of speaks to, to fishing game too. And that, you know, they, they want the right people on, um, you know, a hunt that's kind of as delicate of a topic in a, in a situation as it was that, yeah, you don't want someone out there with just bloodlust and that's just oh, yeah. looking to, to kill, you know, anything that's moving, although that's kind of the goal, but not as straightforward as that. Exactly. Yes. So, well, Hey, Kelvin, I know you got to get to your other job. Um, and I appreciate you taking some time, uh, before you even go into work this morning. I know it's a little bit early out there in, uh, in Montana to be recording a podcast. So I really appreciate you taking some time to tell us, you know, more about what you're doing with 2% and, and hearing about, you know, your path to conservation in the outdoors. And then obviously being able to share uh, the story of the, uh, the goat call hunt as well, because that's something that I've been trying to, to, to learn more about since uh, Jared had told me about it. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, enjoy your rest of the day and thank you again. And uh, we look forward to talking to you soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. All right, take care, Calvin. Thanks. All right, bye. All right, well, a big thanks to Calvin for hopping on the podcast today. Uh, I'd also like to thank our partners over at Go Hunt. Be sure and check them out at GoHunt.com, as well as Stone Glacier. You can find them at StoneGlacier.com. I'd also like to thank 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2%, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you're shopping for your gear or your coffee or your books or your real estate. Uh, really, anything that you can think of, there's probably a 2% brand uh, out there that you can shop. I also encourage you guys to follow 2% on social media where they're going to post only positive content so you'll enjoy their conservation uh, focus posts in your feed. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Stay safe out there and conservation starts with you. Mm-hmm.